from the underground command post. Deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Mark Levin here, our number 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811. Well, as you know, every now and ten we uh, we uh, really jump into history. We have July 4th coming up. But July 4th was the culmination of events that had been occurring for more than a uh, decade before, July 4th, 1776. And as you know, I've been one of the leading proponents of the Articles of uh, the Article 5 and the Convention of States, where the states, through their legislatures, delegates would meet to review what's taking place in the federal government and propose changes to address the uh, rewriting of the Constitution by the Supreme Court and other instrumentalities of the federal government. Remember, the states created the federal government, and the federal government had certain specific and limited responsibilities, but that's not the case anymore. And so the, uh, the framers of the Constitution and the ratifiers, they decided that there would be a provision in our Constitution under Article 5 where the Constitution could be amended should Congress and the other elements of the federal government become oppressive, the word that George Mason used. And in many ways, they have become oppressive. They have become much stronger, much broader than ever intended as a result of the importation of this ideology called progressivism, which is statism. It is an alien ideology. It is incompatible with a constitutional republic. And it is the, uh, the basis, the, the reason for the existence of the modern Democrat Party and most of the modern media and much of academia. The importation of an ideology that is hostile to our founding principles. So what do we do about that? Well, the first thing we do is talk a little bit about our history that is rarely taught. And so I want to go back, back even before 1776. The first time the disparate colonies decided to get together in a meeting, in a conference, in a Congress, if you will, was called the Albany Congress. And it took place in 1754. The Albany Congress. And uh, we're going to walk through this this hour, and I hope you'll, uh, you'll stay with us and even call the kids around if you can. And they came up with the Albany Plan. And just listen to the next three and a half minutes, if you will which explains the Albany Congress and the Albany plan. Cut 17, go. One important element that led to the war for independence was a growing sense of unity amongst the 13 colonies. In the decades prior to the Revolutionary War, a series of meetings and agreements between colonial leaders laid the foundation for a framework that led to American independence. The Albany Plan of Union was a 1754 proposal aimed at building a union of the colonies under a single government. The French and Indian War had just begun, and many argued that the Albany Union was justified to coordinate a defense against the alliance of French and Indian forces threatening the American colonies. The Union was proposed by Benjamin Franklin, 
and it marked the first time in the 1700s that colonial representatives met to discuss a plan for creating a formal union. Eleven colonies sent delegates, with Georgia and Delaware opting not to attend. The delegates agreed to Franklin's proposal, and copies of the Albany Plan were sent to colonial assemblies and the British Board of Trade in London. The plan was rejected by colonial leaders and the British government, who, weary of their colony's growing independent drive, told them to concentrate on raising armies and constructing forts to defend their territory. Although the Albany Plan of Union did not go into effect, many of Franklin's ideas were revived and later implemented into the Articles of Confederation and even the U.S. Constitution. Once the French and Indian War concluded, the relationship between Britain and its colonies quickly soured. The Albany Plan had included a system in which the American colonies could have funded the war through a series of taxes, but Parliament instead chose to fund the war through the British Treasury. At the conclusion of the conflict, the British intended to raise the funds from the colonies through a series of direct taxation. Americans resented the efforts by King George III and Parliament to exert authority over the colonies. Committees of correspondence were organized by colonial leaders and they coordinated resistance to British policies, enforcing colonial boycotts against British goods and informing one another of British abuses of power in each American colony. The intricate network of communication went even further in creating a partnership and camaraderie that stretched from Georgia to Massachusetts. So we have course, here, that's all right, we have here in the Albany Congress then, the real first effort to organize the colonies against the abuses of the British. There's a reason I'm going through all this. The key is, so we get our history out there, but there's another reason, as you'll understand when we're done with this. Were you ever taught about the Albany Congress and the Albany Plain of Union and the great Benjamin Franklin's role? Now, subsequent to the Albany Congress, the British become even more abrasive and tyrannical as applies to the colonies. And 11 and a half years later, 1765, there was the Stamp Act Congress. Have you ever heard of the Stamp Act Congress? And they met in the Federal Hall building in New York City. And they were objecting to the oppressive taxes and the Stamp Act, which was issued by the British Parliament on March 1765. And the Stamp Act was a tax that was placed on every document, every newspaper, every pamphlet, every poem, anything that was written, anything on paper. It had to have an official British stamp mark on it. And the colonists rose up against it. And they began boycotting all British goods. And so they decided to have a meeting called the Stamp Act Congress. Went from uh, October 7, 
to October 25, 1765. uh, 27 representatives of the nine of the 13 colonies were sent. Virginia, North Carolina, Georgia were prevented from attending because their governors refused. These were governors appointed by the British uh, to convene the assemblies to elect the delegates. New Hampshire didn't attend, but it approved the resolutions once the Congress was over. And this Stamp Act Congress approved 13 resolutions in what was called the Declaration of Rights and Grievances. Now, keep something in mind. When this occurred, there was no intention to separate from Britain. This was not an independence movement. This was a grievance movement and and the demand of that certain basic rights be instituted. And this is where the phrase began, no taxation without representation. America was 3,000 miles away from Britain, and there was no representation in the House of Commons. So the Stamp Act Congress declared the Stamp Act duties impracticable and effectively null and void. So they petitioned the Crown to withdraw them. And the king said, uh, no, we're not going to withdraw them. As a matter of fact, you shouldn't be meeting. That's an illegal assembly. Now, the Stamp Act was eventually repealed. It was eventually repealed because the British merchants rose up because the boycott by the American colonies was uh, very, very painful. And so the Stamp Act was eventually withdrawn. That is the second official Congress, if you will, of the colonies. There was a third meeting of the colonies. In fact, it was called the First Continental Congress. Now, the First Continental Congress would meet about 10 years later. Cut 18, go. Boston, August 10th, 1774. John Adams is donning a new suit, and if he's not careful, the British will bury him in it. The Patriot leader is heading for a secret meeting in Philadelphia that will change the course of history and could cost him his life. Adams is one of four men representing Massachusetts at the First Continental Congress, an unprecedented and, as far as the king is concerned, illegal meeting of delegates from up and down the colonies. 55 delegates of America's best and brightest who gather to come up with a unified strategy to oppose Britain's increasing encroachment on their liberties. If the king had his way, they would all hang for treason. That illustrates how strongly they felt that they must take steps to remove themselves from the, what they saw as the arbitrary power of the British crown. Britain has already suspended Massachusetts' constitution and imposed martial law there. The other colonies fear that it's only a matter of time before they all meet the same fate. Even though these colonies have different economic interests, they have different political histories, they have different populations, they recognize that in our relationship with Britain, we have much in common. Not all of these people have met each other. Most have heard about each other. Now they're eager to meet each other, see what's going to happen. People know that there's going to be moderates and not so moderates. And there's already kind of little factions forming. 
Joining John Adams from Massachusetts is another radical, 37-year-old John Hancock, a wealthy Boston merchant who has been using his considerable fortune to fuel the cause. Pennsylvania has sent a moderate lawyer, John Dickinson, 42, whose widely read essays back in the 60s helped launch the anti-tax movement. From Virginia comes Patrick Henry, the volatile young orator whose Virginia resolves helped stamp out the Stamp Act. And also from Virginia, a wealthy 42-year-old planter and veteran of the Seven Years' War, George Washington. One of the problems is they all thought of themselves as Pennsylvanians, Rhode Islanders, South Carolinians, much more than they thought of themselves as Americans. Patrick Henry really just electrifies everyone when he says, I am no longer a Virginian, I am now an American. John Adams says the trick is to get 13 clocks to strike all at the same time, 13 ships to sail in the same formation. Uh, It's not easy. Thirteen conspirators against the crown. Finally, after two months of arguing and pontificating, the Congress adjourns with a unified message for England. Until colonial rights are restored, all 13 colonies will halt all trade with Great Britain. Local militias are to arm and stand in readiness. As one might expect, kings don't do well with ultimatums. No one tells the King of England what to do. The die is now cast. The colonies must either submit or triumph. I do not wish to come to severer measures, but we must not retreat. I trust they will come to submit. He makes the assumption that a simple show of force, of military might, will be enough to scare the rebels back to their senses. Not likely. Certainly not in Boston. Interesting. So we have the, uh, the Albany Congress. We have the Stamp Act Congress. We have the First Continental Congress. And you can see what is about to occur. And shortly thereafter, quickly convened, is the Second Continental Congress. And when we return, we'll discuss that. We'll be right back. Mark Lovin. breaks loose. The Revolutionary War effectively began between Britain and the American colonies in 1775. And so delegates from all 13 colonies meet in Philadelphia to plot the course of war and soon independence. The Second Continental Congress convened in Philadelphia in the summer of 1775, as explains Khan Academy, shortly after the war with British had begun. The Congress appointed George Washington as the commander of the Continental Army. On July 4, 1776, the Congress issued the Declaration of Independence, which for the first time asserted the colony's intention 
to be fully independent. They would establish itself as the central governing authority under the Articles of Confederation, and they remained in force until 1788. Specifically, in April 1775 at Lexington and Concord in Massachusetts, the war between Britain and its North American colonies broke out. And in order to direct the war effort, begin debating the contours of the system of government that would emerge to replace British rule, delegates from all 13 colonies convened in Philadelphia in the summer of 1775. Now, the most pressing order of business was the war effort. It was not unified, nor were there many leaders who could potentially command the disparate armed forces, which at this point were mostly composed of various local militias. In June, the delegates voted to raise an army through conscription and appointed George Washington to command the new Continental Army. There were two main factions represented at this Congress. The so-called conservatives headed by John Jay of New York and John Dickinson of Pennsylvania and the radicals led by John Adams of Massachusetts and Thomas Jefferson of Virginia. When we return after the break... We will complete our very brief journey through early American history. I want to tip our hat at the Khan Academy, and I'll be right back. Right versus left is right versus wrong. Call Mark at 877-381-3811. In April 1775, at Lexington and Concord in Massachusetts, war between Britain and the North American colonies broke out. The First Continental Congress had already disbanded. Their efforts to sue for peace were rejected. In order to direct the war effort and begin debating the contours of the system of government that would emerge to replace British rule... Delegates from all 13 colonies convened in Philadelphia in the summer of 1775. The most pressing order of business was the war effort. It was not unified, nor were there many leaders who could potentially command the disparate armed forces, which at this point were mostly composed of various local militias. They are up against the most powerful military force on the face of the earth. In June... The delegates voted to raise an army through conscription, and they appointed George Washington to command the new Continental Army. They knew full well that if they lost, they would all hang. There were two main factions represented in the Congress, the conservatives headed by John Jay of New York and John Dickinson of Pennsylvania, and the so-called radicals led by John Adams of Massachusetts and Thomas Jefferson of Virginia. Now, the so-called conservatives still believed that reconciliation with British was possible. And on July 5th, the Congress authorized the Olive Branch Petition. That's July 5th, 1775. That represented one final attempt at negotiation and affirmed the colony's loyalty to the crown. But the following day, the Congress issued the Declaration of the Causes and Necessity of Taking Up Arms, which explained and justified the 13 colonies' decision to go to war. 
This had the effect of invalidating the Olive Branch petition, which the British had already summarily rejected. Though the ideas of the conservatives continued to be debated in the Congress, the battles at Lexington and Concord and the subsequent siege of Boston pushed many of the delegates into the so-called radical camp. The Second Continental Congress assumed the normal functions of a government, appointing ambassadors, issuing paper currency, raising the Continental Army through conscription, and appointing generals to lead the army. But the powers of the Congress were still very limited. It didn't have the authority to raise taxes, nor did it have the ability to regulate commerce. On July 4, 1776, <coughs> that's our Independence Day, the Congress took a momentous step and issued the Declaration of Independence. Although the delegates were partly motivated by the necessity of securing foreign allies, particularly the French, to assist with the war effort against Britain, many of them, most of them, also understood that the time for negotiations was over. Nothing short of full independence would suffice. Thomas Jefferson composed the first draft of the Declaration, which was then edited by by the other delegates to produce the final version that was approved on July 4th. As the delegates sought to direct the war effort, they were also looking ahead to the end of the war and the government that would replace British rule. That said, the war went on for eight and a half years. What should this government look like? What would be its obligations to its citizens and so forth? After months of fierce debate, on November 15, 1777, the Congress adopted the Articles of Confederation, which established a unicameral legislature that served as the fledgling nation's governing authority until 1788, when it was eventually replaced in 1789 with a new constitution. The Continental Congress, the Second Continental Congress, effectively transformed a collection of disparate colonies into a country under a functioning central government, the Articles of Confederation, and eventually the Constitution of the United States. I barely really touched the tip of the iceberg here. If you want to really go back, you would look at 1651, the Navigation Acts. 1733, the Molasses Acts. 1754, we talked about the Albany Congress. 1763, the Proclamation of 1763. 1764, the Sugar Act. 1764, the Currency Act. 1765, we talked about the Stamp Act. And then the Stamp Act Congress. 1766... The Declaratory Act. These are acts of Britain. 1767, the Townshend Revenue Act. 1770, the Boston Massacre. 1773, the Tea Act. 1773, the Boston Tea Party. 1774, the Intolerable Acts. 1774, the First Continental Congress, as we've just talked about. 1775, the Second Continental Congress. 1776, the formal declaration of independence by the Second Continental Congress. 
This is your history. Now step back and look at what's taking place in this country today. The nature of our government is utterly and completely unmoored from that history. The size of the government, I say the government, I mean the federal government, the central government, the power of the government, the ubiquitous nature of the government, the endless series of taxes, regulations, impositions by the federal government. This federal government that was created by the states with limited authority, separation of powers, balance of powers, specific powers, and all other authority left to individuals and all other governing power left to the states. What has happened, and I touched on it early on, and I've talked about it before and I've written about it in Rediscovering Americanism and the Tyranny of Progressivism, is a poison has been let loose into the body politic. Our founding fathers reject everything, everything associated with the philosophy that undergirds progressivism. Hegelism. Hegel was a German philosopher. A Prussian, if you will. And despite all his writings and all his talk about the people and so forth, he essentially, when you want to really summarize it, was backing the the German Empire. Marx picked up on Hegelism, modified it, added materialism to it. Marxism, Hegelism, and other isms brought forth in the United States this so-called progressive movement, self-named progressivism, which of course is regressivism. And the earliest of the progressive intellectuals, the 1850s and the 1860s and, and beyond, attacked the Declaration of Independence. The history I just gave you leading up to the Declaration of Independence, they completely and utterly reject it. They write about it. They explain how and why they reject it, which is why I included it in my book. We had a president of the United States in Woodrow Wilson who was one of the leading so-called progressive intellectuals 30 years before he was elected president. And you had many, John Dewey, and so forth, who were enormously influential. Influential with another president by the name of Theodore Roosevelt, who obviously preceded Woodrow Wilson, a Republican. And these men, these ideologues, these intellectuals, spent their time academically and politically trying to make the case for rejecting the basic principles that are set forth in the Declaration of Independence. They basically dismissed the Declaration and all the history I just gave you and the history that followed 
that created our Constitution. They reject it as a historical throwback. That was all very important for the time. But the times have changed. Jefferson said in a letter responding to a critic, a critic who said to Jefferson, yeah, well, you know, you wrote this Declaration of Independence. You really didn't have many new ideas in there. And Jefferson said the point wasn't to create new ideas. The point was to embrace the right ideas. And he says in his letter that he looked to Aristotle and Cicero and Sidney and Locke and many others. And so did his contemporaries at the time. Do the progressives today look at Aristotle, Cicero, Sidney, and Locke? No. No. They look to Marx and Hegel. This, ladies and gentlemen, is one of the reasons Bernie Sanders will not debate me. On any of my media platforms, on radio, on Levin TV, on the Fox News channel, he won't debate me. Because I know what he knows. He knows what I know. And we both know if we would sit down for an hour and have a discussion, I would thoroughly and completely expose him. This is why the 28-year-old young lady who was just elected the so-called Socialist Democrat in New York will not come on this show. Because she knows that I know what she knows. And she knows what I know. And she doesn't want to have a discussion with me. She'd rather go on MSNBC and CNN. Now, where am I going with all this? We had a few calls last night, as I do often, asking, Mark, where do we go with this? Where are we headed? How do we save our republic? And I wrote an entire book on this called The Liberty Amendments. Remember the Albany Congress and the Stamp Act Congress and the First Continental Congress and the Second Continental Congress? How the colonies and then the states would meet would meet to discuss what was taking place in the country, how to make it better. Well, those geniuses who met in Philadelphia after the Revolutionary War to replace the Articles of Confederation with an actual constitution, they put a provision in their constitution under Article 5 that provides two ways to amend the constitution. One, through Congress, Two-thirds of both houses proposing amendments to the states. Three-fourths of the states are now 38 states having to ratify. And two days before the end of the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, George Mason stood up, a delegate from Virginia, genius, brilliant. And he said, if Congress shall turn oppressive, the only way to reform what's taking place is through violence. We must give the people the power to address a tyrannical Congress, or in this case, a tyrannical federal government. And they set forth the process in the Constitution. And the legitimate constitutional way is through the state legislatures. 34 state legislatures. 
coming up with virtually identical resolutions when it comes to the issues they want to discuss, calling for a meeting, a convention of the states, where they meet, they discuss what they want to do to get the original Constitution back, which has been rewritten by the Politburo that we now call the Supreme Court, which still would require the same ratification process, 38 states, three-fourths of the state legislatures, either by, either by the legislatures or convention. So there's no potential whatsoever for a runaway convention, since the states are in charge from beginning to end. This is how you address what's taking place in this country. It's certainly not going to happen tomorrow. It's certainly not going to happen next year. But if it doesn't happen, I'm telling you in 50 years, your children will not recognize this country. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. by now that you and your entire family, credit history is everything, can fall victim to identity theft at any moment. Every time you use your credit card, even open an email, techno thieves are after you. So have you taken measures yet to protect your most valuable asset, your identity? Don't wait. Let my ID care start protecting you today. Identity theft is serious, complicated stuff. You read about it every day. How these hackers break into corporate accounts and databases, banks, financial institutions, retail stores, government accounts, the OPM, even the Pentagon and the White House. Well, none of them are protecting you. You have to take this on yourself. And luckily, we have a wonderful, wonderful company that can do that and help you. So, for instance, have you heard of synthetic ID theft It's when thieves take pieces of personal information from various people and create a fake persona. But my ID care covers you for even this sophisticated kind of scam. No one can protect you 100%, but my ID care offers best-in-class protection. Best-in-class. And they give you a 100% identity recovery guarantee if you do fall victim or your money back. Let my ID care take care of you just like they do me and my family. Credit freezes alone won't protect you from all nine types of identity theft, but my ID care will. Learn more and get 15% off at myidcare.com slash mark promo code mark. That's a mouthful. Let me repeat it. Myidcare.com slash mark promo code mark. One more. Myidcare.com slash mark promo code mark. So when you and I say we want a constitutionalist on the Supreme Court, And the progressives scream and bark and burp and say, you'll move the court to the right. What does that mean, you'll move the court to the right? We are constitutionalists. Conservatism, constitutional, it's not right, it's not left. A constitutionalist is somebody who wants, as best as possible, to make sure the Constitution is faithfully interpreted interpreted and upheld. Why is that a right or left thing? What else is a judge or justice supposed to do? Isn't that their obligation? You and I are trying to defend an institution against a foreign ideology imported into this country that is trying to promote its ideology and devour 
our Constitution and our constitutional republic. We are defending the institution. They are attacking the institution. And we are defending the institution because we understand the principles that undergird these institutions. Liberty. Individualism. Private property rights. Faith. I'll be right back. of a hidden bunker somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building we've once again made contact with our leader Mark Levin Hello everybody, Mark Levin here our number 877-381-3811 877-381-3811 Caller 1 is an excellent question so let's jump right in and I will Project from there. Dan, Owls Head, New York, on the Mark Levin app. How are you, sir? I'm fine. How are you? Very well. What is your question, sir? I, I was listening. I, I was, I'm interested in Hegel, and I'd like to know why you think that Hegel is a progenitor of progressivism. He's actually a progenitor first of Marxism. And Marx certainly thought he's actually a progenitor first of Marxism. And Marx himself thought so. And now I will explain it to you. He believed in this argument, of course, of historical progress, of historical dialecticism. And I'm telling this to the American people here. It's not just for you. That is, some societies, he argued, for human development or the lack thereof, they change from one historical period to the next. So some societies are stuck in their own history. Others progress over time, his argument. But the trajectory of history generally is toward the ideal state. The method of individual and societal progress involves a dialectic process. Some reasoned, some unconscious. This is what he argued. I'm reading from my own book. In which opposites are in constant state of conflict, synthesizing into ever higher truths, which eventually lead to a fully developed state, which he called the final end. And you can see some Darwinism in this, too. So that which appears irrational in a state will eventually be brought into harmony, he argues. And this, contended Hegel, is the fact of human history and evolution. And the state is ultimately the external force as opposed to the uh, eternal force through which the individual finds his actualization. That's his word. Liberty, happiness, and fulfillment through the state. As such, the individual is not consumed with his own existence and private affairs, what he called subjective thought. Instead, by way of the state, the individual sees beyond self and becomes a citizen of the state whose reality is part of a universalized whole and collective life through which the individual learns what is reasonable, that is, objective thought. This is the final end sought by the individual and the state, the consciousness of mind and freedom. In this way, the individual serves and benefits from the state and vice versa. That which came before effectively vanishes. Therefore, man progressively moves away from the state of nature to the final end through reason. And he was very dismissive of the American Declaration of Natural Rights, thought that was all hokum all uh, mythology. He wrote in his book, The Elements of Philosophy of Right, in 1820, about the ideal state. Here's what he says. 
The state is the realized ethical idea or ethical spirit. It is the will which manifests itself, makes itself clear and visible, substantiates itself. It is the will which thinks and knows. I'm quoting. The state finds an ethical custom its direct and unreflected existence and its indirect and reflected existence in the self-consciousness of the individual and in his knowledge and activity. In other words, the individual and the state become one and the same. Self-consciousness in the form of social disposition has its substantive freedom in the state as the essence, purpose, and product of its activity. The state, which is the realized substantive will, having its reality in the particular self-consciousness raised to the plane of the universal, is absolutely rational. This substantive unity is its own motive and absolute end. In this end, freedom attains its highest right. This end has the highest right over the individual, whose highest duty, in turn, is to be a member of the state. And as I say, therefore, the individual is again subservient to the state, for the same state can never attain the lofty utopian heights devised by Hegel, and the individual will never be adequate to the cause. Meanwhile, the individual's independence and free will are absorbed by the state in the name of community and general welfare. Indeed, the unity of the so-called actualized individual with the ideal state requires the abandonment of the past, the abandonment of the Declaration. Hegel found no relevance at all in the origin and founding principles of a nation, except to understand the next step in the historical process and the synthesizing that comes from dialecticism. In fact, Hegel took a direct shot at the notion of eternal natural law and rights that are in our declaration, as well as the social contract, which, of course, are the bases of America's founding and the Declaration of Independence. He insisted that the only legitimate form of thought involves the application of the science of the state. This is a constant theme, folks, among American progressives. The diminution of the individual, the rejection of America's heritage. Hegel went on. He said, rationality viewed abstractly consists in the thorough unity of universality and individuality. Taken concretely, and from the standpoint of the content, it is the unity of objective freedom with the subject of freedom, of the general substantive will with the individual's consciousness. So the subjective freedom is the individual's freedom. The objective freedom is the freedom of the state. They must be, become one. And he goes on, and I'm not trying to go into the weeds here, but it's really, uh, I think the word I would use is obtuse. And in his book, The Open Society and Its Enemies, by Karl Popper, of whom I am a huge fan, he was an Austrian-British philosopher and a big critic of Hegel. And he exposed, among others, Hegel's illogic. He says, Hegel's intention is to operate freely with all contradictions, because his point is that Hegel's philosophy is you've got these, these two forces going at each other, and then, and then a more perfect force is created, and that just keeps going on and on and on until you have the, the final stage the final solution. And Marx, as you can see, picked up on that, applied it to historic materialism, and applied much of Hegelism. He altered it, but was hugely influenced by it. Early in his life, Marx said, no, 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 forget about Hegel. And then later in his life, he said, actually, Hegel was right on in a number of things. And so uh, Popper says... All things are contradictory in themselves, says Hegel. 
He insists in order to defend a position which means the end, not only of all science, but of all rational argument. In other words, we get to this, this final solution. And as Popper points out, there is no final solution. And the reason why he wishes to admit contradictions is that he wants to stop rational argument. And with it, scientific and intellectual progress. In other words, if your philosophy is, look, we're always going to have opposites fighting with each other and they get to a more perfect position and then there's opposites to fight over that position and so forth and so on. Popper's point is, well, then you never have right and wrong. (laughs) You never have uh, good and evil. It's just a process. And so uh, it goes on. I can get into this more deeply, but I probably lost half the audience already. Any questions, Dan? But w- would you agree, though, that Hegel talks about uh, spirit, that the uh, spirit is the uh, evolution of freedom, where he says in the philosophy of history that first one was free, then some were free, then all will be free. Well, I guess. I mean, but, that, but you can't be free through the state. I don't think Mark was, was concerned about freedom. And Hegel, Hegel was not concerned about freedom. Hegel was really writing well, a, uh, let me finish, was writing a defense of the, uh, of the monarchy, of the what? German monarchy, and he was loved by the German monarchy. This, these were excuses, in my view, and in Popper's view and the view of many other people. And no, he, was, he uses words like spirit and, and individuality, uh, but always it is the state in the end. You must you must collude with or combine with the state in order to realize your full, as he would say, individual actualization. You don't agree with that, do you? I'd have to think about it. Better think hard, because that's the that that is the prescription for tyranny, sir. I think the real progenitor of, of progressivism is is the abandonment of of uh, religion. Well, sir, I'm telling you what the... Listen, I didn't make this up. The progressive intellectuals who would follow Hegel and Marx pointed to Hegel and Marx. Okay. Uh, And where does religion come in with Hegel? When the the final state, the the final act, doesn't even involve a religion, it involves the state. You have people like uh, David Brush, uh, Friedrich Strauss. Boyer I don't Bob. care about him. I'm asking. We were talking about Hegel. This, but this is the point. He, he, Hegel is not living in, a, in isolation. He's living at a time of tremendous uh, change. Hegel's He's point, living at a time of tremendous change, which he rejects. He's defending the monarchy. No, That's the whole point. Uh, no, I wouldn't say he's necessarily defending the monarchy. Well, they, they adored him. They embraced him. Well, if you don't believe that Hegel was defending the monarchy, then you don't understand Hegel. All right, my friend. I do appreciate your call. Let's go to Joe Lyons, Georgia, the great WTKS. Go. Go uh, ahead, hello. Joe. Yes, sir. Uh, yes. Uh, yes. I would like to know what is wrong with popularism. The reason I asked this question is I was listening to another radio host who happens to... Yeah, you don't need to mention the host, but what's wrong with populism? Go ahead. I was just asking what is wrong with it with, like, your opinion, because when I actually heard last week about about your... uh, Excuse me. 
Uh-oh. All right, let's let me address populism. Thank you for your call, my friend. If you read the Constitution, there's no populism in the Constitution. None whatsoever. Which article, which section, which clause promotes populism? The founders of this country and the framers of the Constitution and the ratifiers of the Constitution feared pure democracy. The courts don't reflect pure democracy. The presidency doesn't reflect pure democracy. There's an electoral college. The Senate doesn't reflect pure democracy. And even in the case of the House, there's two-year limits, and then you've got to keep, re- keep running. No plebiscites, no referendum, nothing. Uh, John Adams said it best. He said if the people could vote, they'd vote to take the property from those who earned it. You look at the Declaration of Independence, they talk about unalienable rights. Unalienable rights are unalienable rights. It has nothing to do with democracy or populism. There's another brilliant man that I've quoted in the past. His name was, or is, Isaiah Berlin. He's passed away since. <clears throat> brilliant man. And uh, we've talked about him before, and we will in the future. And he talked about liberty. Positive liberty, negative liberty. And I don't want to get too heavy, but... He goes into these ideas of populism, nationalism, constitutionalism, and so forth. And uh, he makes the point that liberty is not necessarily defended by any form of government. That any form of government is capable of tyranny. I use this example on your unalienable rights. Are your unalienable rights subject to plebiscites? Does your neighbor or do your neighbors, do a collective of people, by the motion of voting, get to deny you any of your unalienable rights? Your God-given unalienable rights? Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, life, liberty, property? Of course not. The purpose of the Constitution is to, is to create the governing mechanism through which the principles in the Declaration of Independence are manifested. They didn't create a populist government. Now, Theodore Roosevelt, when he was running in the Progressive Party, nicknamed the Bull Moose Party, among, and you can Google this, among the long list of things that he supported was national plebiscites. He was a progressive and a populist, and that's part of the problem. You had uh, parties in the mid to late 1860s, calling themselves the People's Party. Well, I don't support the People's Party. I don't even know what that means. We are a republic. We're not a democracy. We're a republic. We're not a populist government. There's something called the Burkean trusteeship. I remember reading this when I was like 12 or 13 years old. I haven't read it since, but you can Google it. Now, what's the Burkean trusteeship? Well, obviously, it's something Edmund Burke had penned, another great man, man born in Ireland, immigrated to uh, Britain, became one of the most brilliant members of parliament and writers of his time. He supported the American Revolution and rejected the French Revolution. The French Revolution was a populist revolution, and you had 10 years of terror. It was horrific. The American Revolution was not a populist revolution. It was a Republican revolution. 
with checks and balances, with separation of power and so forth and so on. The American people, excuse me, the American founders feared the mob and the monarchy. The mob and the monarchy. But still, the will of the people needed to be expressed. And so how do you do that? The will of the people will be expressed through a process. People get to vote for president, but there's a protection in there, the Electoral College. People get to vote for Congress, two bodies in Congress, vote for one directly, at least originally, the way the Senate was set up, and then the Senate would represent the states. And we do not elect judges. And they set this system up. Now, you will hear the, the autocrats, the progressives, the, uh, the progeny of, of Hegel and Marx, go on and on and on about the people, the general welfare, um, uh, community, and so forth and so on. And yet, the only way they, they can meet their fanciful objectives is through the iron fist of a centralized state, which is why they hate the Constitution and reject the Declaration. I'll be right back. Mark Rediscovering Americanism and the Tyranny of Progressives. They are incompatible. Absolutely incompatible. And we, collectively, need to understand the force that we're up against. This is why I spent the first hour of the program very briefly going over the early parts of American history. Looking at what's going on today, the battle over the Supreme Court. The rejection of the Declaration of the Constitution by people, so-called progressives, I call them status, who pretend to care about the Constitution. It's a very short segment, unfortunately, but Hegel wrote other things. And he lived from 1770 to 1831, if you're curious. He specifically rejected the Declaration of Independence, the way that Obama used to leave out crucial phrases of the Declaration of Independence, the way that Woodrow Wilson, on a July 4th during the course of his presidency, went to Independence Hall, stood out front of Independence Hall, and essentially eviscerated the Declaration of Independence. You cannot be a so-called progressive and believe in natural law and the law of nature and unalienable rights of the individual. You cannot. You believe in government. You believe in taking things from some people and giving it to other people. You believe that all roads of justice and equality run through an all-powerful central government managed by so-called elites. I'll be right back. The Mark Levin Show. Live and national at 877-381-3811. Is there any place that teaches young adults to seek what is true, beautiful, and good? To even understand what those things mean? How about understanding the principle that all men are created equal? Or why America is the world's freest nation? You know, there's a place where students study these things. It's called Hillsdale College. And by putting in the work to understand essential truths... Students graduate ready to lead in any field of their choosing. As Vice President Prince said at 
commencement this year, Hillsdale students learn not what to do, but what to be. Hillsdale also offers its stellar education to you through the free monthly subscription to Imprimus and in free online courses like Constitution 101. The fact is, every American can learn like a Hillsdale student from the same professors. Most remarkably of all, Hillsdale provides this service to our nation without taking a single penny of taxpayer money, state, local, federal, not one penny. I strongly encourage you to learn how Hillsdale can serve you at a website just for you, my beloved audience. LevinforHillsdale.com, LevinforHillsdale.com, that's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. If you're enjoying today's show and the sort of things that I'm talking about, go to Hillsdale. That is LevinforHillsdale.com. Check it out. Well, you folks are very, very interested in these subjects tonight, and I'm very impressed and pleased, but I shouldn't be surprised, and I'm not really not, because you're the smartest of the smartest. So let's go on, because this guy Hegel is, is very, very crucial to understanding Kamala Harris and Bernie Sanders and Chuck Schumer and today's media. Half of them don't even understand that they're Hegelians. But Bernie Sanders does, because he's a communist. He gets it. Now, this philosophy, so-called progressivism, as I say, these, this is the progeny of, of Hegel and Marx, among others. Hegel wrote, concerning a constitution, this is a direct attack on us. Remember when he lived? 1770 to 1831. As concerning reason itself, there has in modern times been an endless babble, which has in Germany been more insipid than anywhere else. Remember, remember what I said. Hegel was essentially, despite all the his writings and arguments and thinking and so forth and so on. He was effectively defending uh, the dictatorship in Germany. So he rejected constitutionalism, just as today's left does. With us, there are those who have persuaded themselves that it is best, even at the very threshold of government, to understand before all other things what a constitution is. And they think that they have furnished invincible proof that religion and piety should be the basis of all their shallowness. It is small wonder if this pratting has made for reasonable mortals the words reason, illumination, right, constitution, liberty, mere empty sounds, and men should have become ashamed to talk about political constitutions. At least as one effect of this superfluidity, we may hope to see the conviction become general that a philosophic acquaintance with such topics cannot proceed from mere reasons, ends, grounds, and utilities, much less from feeling, love, and inspiration, but only out of the conception. It will be a fortunate thing, too, if those who maintain the divine to be inconceivable and an acquaintance with the truth to be wasted effort were henceforth to refrain from breaking in upon the argument. I'll explain in a second. What of undigested rhetoric and edification they manufacture out of those feelings can at least lay no claim to philosophic notice. So he's denouncing the declaration, the notion of natural law, the notion of a, uh, of a God conferring unalienable rights, the creator on a people, and the idiocy, he would argue, of founding a country based on that and then being stuck in that so you can never move forward. 
Modernization. You hear it today. Modernization. The modern man, the modern woman. Hegel then denounced the doctrine of separation of powers, the purpose of which is to contain the power of the state and protect the individual from the tyranny that typically arises from the centralization of power. He wrote, amongst current ideas must be mentioned that regarding the necessary division of the functions of the state, this is most important feature, which, when taken in its true sense, is rightly regarded as the guarantee of public freedom. But of this, those who think to speak out of inspiration and love neither know nor will know anything. For in it lies the element of determination through the way of reason. The principle of the separation of functions contains the essential element of difference, that is to say, of rationality. But as apprehended by the abstract understanding, it is false when it leads to the view that these several functions are absolutely independent and it is one-sided when it is considered the relation of those functions to one another as negative and mutually limiting. So he's saying it's one thing to have separate forces fighting with each other for the purpose of moving towards this final solution. But it's quite another to have the separation of powers for the purpose of having separation of powers. So you can see. So despite his extensive argument about conscious freedom, what, what, what calls reason and spirituality, as the gentleman with calling said, a community of the whole, egalitarianism, the ambiguity of the practical form of the final end, the eventual perfect state, and the condemnation of constitutional republicanism as disparate parts of the same organ devouring itself, Hegel finally revealed himself as a monarchist. Just as the left in this country ultimately reveals itself. You can name it as tyrannical. He said the legislative corresponds to universality and the executive to particularity. But the judicial is not the third element of the conception. The individuality uniting the other two lies beyond these spheres. The function of the prince as the subjectivity with which rests the final decision. Got that? Got that? Subjectivity, the, the, the ultimate individual actualization rests with the prince. The function of the prince as the subjective with which with, with rests the final decision. In this function, the other two are brought into an individual unity. The legislature, the courts, brought into an individual unity with the prince. It is at once the culmination and beginning of the whole. This, he says, is constitutional monarchy. So, Hegel's final end is an all-knowing, all-powerful monarchy. Quote, the perfecting of the state into a constitutional monarchy is the work of the modern world, in which the substantive idea has attained the infinite form. This is the descent of the spirit of the world into itself, the free perfection by virtue of which the idea sets loose from itself and its own elements, and nothing but its own elements, and makes them totalities. All right, yak, yak, yak. The point is, the totality, the spirit, finally, conforms into this princely figure. And to the critics of monarchy, I'm telling you this is important. The vast majority of you have never been taught this. This is important. 
I know it's a lot to consume. I really do. So to the critics of monarchy, Hegel wrote, the conception of monarch offers great difficulty to abstract reasoning. So you and I, we're stuck with abstract reasoning. You see, we, the notion of God and unalienable rights and natural, that's well, that's fine. That's all this abstract, mythical mumbo jumbo. But he's dealing with real science. And in the end, it's the monarchy. It's the prince through which all of us attain our ultimate and realize our ultimate individuality, you see. The conception of monarch offers great difficulty to abstract reasoning and to reflective methods of the understanding. The understanding never gets beyond isolated determination, you know, separation of power, blah, 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 from his point of view. He says, basically, he said, you don't progress from anything. You just talk about separation of powers and uh, unalienable God-given rights and natural law. He says, you know, that's fine and good for that period of time, but now you're stuck there. You're stuck in your Constitution. You're stuck in your Declaration. I'm showing you the way out. Marx does the same thing, somewhat differently. He doesn't believe in the prince, obviously. He substitutes the prince with the mob, if you will, in my opinion. Thus, the dignity of the monarch is represented as something derivative, not only in its form, but also in its essential character, he says. If by the phrase sovereignty of the people, it is to be understood a republic, or more precisely, democracy, all that is necessary has been said. So Hegel's talking about the previous denunciation of separation of powers, etc. Says when a people is not a a patriarchal tribe, having passed from the primitive condition, which made the forms of aristocracy and democracy possible, it is represented not as in a willful and unorganized condition, but as a self-developed, truly organic totality. In such a people, sovereignty is the personality of the whole and exists, too, in a reality which is proportionate to the conception, the person of the monarch, of the monarch. And so it brings you unavoidably to an examination of Karl Marx. Karl Marx, he was also a German philosopher. He studied Hegel's writings very, very carefully. So did his frequent partner, Frederick Engels. And Marxism's intellectual starting point is nearly indistinguishable from Hegel's. Marx also saw history as the past and the present washed away through the perfection of society. Marx argued, though, that Hegel's idealistic historicism and its emphasis on legal and political conditions failed to account sufficiently for the most important characteristic of historical progress, economics. But I'm not going to spend time getting into Marx right now. That, for another day. But it's important that we do that other day. So again, you can understand Kamala Harris. And you can understand Chuck Schumer. And you can understand Elizabeth Warren. And you can understand Bernie Sanders. They are driving an agenda that is alien to our founding principles. It almost makes me smirk, if you will, on July 4th. When at times I'll watch on TV what's going on in Washington, D.C., the beautiful PBS show 
the patriotic show. And every now and then they'll show a liberal Democrat waving an American flag. And I'm saying, do they even know what they're doing? Are they actually celebrating America's founding? Or are they celebrating where they've taken America? The contradictions in the mind of the left are really remarkable. On the one hand, they dismiss the founding as that of white men with white privilege who own slaves. Then on the other, on July 4th, they're standing there waving an American flag. Well, which is it? You proud of your country? And if you want to fundamentally transform it, I don't see how you can be so proud of it. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. You know, uh, some of you may be thinking right now, why do we, what's with all this? And I will tell you what's with all this. And why I do my show and why often I do it this way. I mentioned Isaiah Berlin, and he said to the effect, if you leave ideas and philosophy to the academics and the intellectuals, you will lose your liberty. You will lose your country. You see, for many of them, ladies and gentlemen, we are nothing more, nothing less than mice in a social experiment. You need to know what they're up to in order to do something about it. Take to the streets. Do this, do that. Okay. For what? To do what? The battle of ideas still matter. When you see the talking points or hear them from the left day in and day out on these cable shows, they don't miss a a step. Now we're all supposed to support abolishing ICE. Before that, we were supposed to support open borders we're supposed to support national health care abortion on demand on and on and on they never stop they press their agenda push 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 doesn't matter how they get it whether it's the ballot box whether it's the bureaucracy whether it's the courts because they don't believe in constitutional republicanism they believe in an ideology and so the ends justify the means to the extent you were able to follow what I read, and I know I read a lot and I read it fast, you can see how dismissive Hegel is of constitutionalism and republicanism. Marx is the same. Fundamental transformation. Under a constitution, you cannot have fundamental transformation unless you are fundamentally transforming the constitution. Now, I know Wikipedia won't mention any of this discussion. Instead, they... They smear me, they character assassinate me because they allow leftists to get in there and edit and so forth. And I know when the left writes about this program, they just mention from time to time when I may bark something out and so forth and so on, as any human being would. But you know better. We get into these issues like nobody else, and we have to. And I write about these issues like nobody else because I have to. And we must understand what's taking place and what it's based on. Because it is taking place. You know what I'm sitting in right now? My forever favorite chair. I mean, I'm 60 years old, and I'm sitting in my favorite chair. Favorite chair in 60 years. 
It's my X chair. And it's at my desk in the bunker. I have a photo of it up on my social sites. And it not only looks cool, I am telling you, you know, I had this slip disc and then uh, and then it broke into a thousand pieces and I had to remove the L5, I think they called it. <clears throat> and I would sit here aching, sitting in one of these uh, office store chairs that I put together myself. And by the way, they never lasted. One of the arms would start cracking. They'd start squeaking. Mr. Producer would say, uh, I can hear you moving in your chair. This is a not only a beautiful chair. I'm telling you, this is the most comfortable chair I have ever had. It is luxuriously comfortable. It molds to my body. Gives me ideal posture. And that in turn gives me more energy, better concentration, more productivity. Don't waste another day in that generic chair that you've been using. Get an X chair and feel the difference. In fact, if you own a small business, get them for the entire office and see how much your employees appreciate them and how productive they become as a result. Now, here's a special for my listeners. An X-Chair only advertises on my show. So go to xchairlevin.com right now and get $100 off. That's xchairlevin.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. 1-844-4X-Chair. X-Chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. And if you go to xchairlevin.com right now and use code LEVINFOOTREST, you'll get a free footrest, too. All right? That's xchairlevin.com. From the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. This is Mark Levin wishing you a happy 4th of July. Now back to the best of me. Hello everybody, Mark Levin here. Our number 877 877-381-3811. 877-381-3811. Well, yes. And um, I'm tugged and pulled this way and that way. This is the last hour, the third hour. and There is a comedy bit on Netflix by this Michelle Wolf. You remember her? The, uh, well, whatever. So uh, she has said some of the most horrible things about Ivanka Trump. And I've made a decision not to play it. Number one, you in my audience, you're not going to want to hear this. Number two, she is so vile that I won't give her the attention. But you can go on the Internet and see what she said. Really, she acts like a subhuman. She really does. And she thinks she's really hip. She's not hip. She's a slob. And I thought to myself, did any of you watch Life, Liberty, and Levin last night at 10 p.m. on the Fox News Channel Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific? A lot of you do. And I want to thank you. And I had a great guest last night. Now, I promoted it on my radio show. We promoted it on Sean Hannity's show. But I even had my friends and staff watch. There was no promotion on the Fox News channel. And they have two Fox hosts, Sean Hannity and Mark Levin. No promotion whatsoever. 8 p.m. show is promoted. 9 p.m. shows. I'm the 10 p.m. Sunday show. Nothing. 
Isn't that weird, Mr. Producer? It's very odd. It's like there's some saboteur in there. I don't know what's going on. And I've, I've complained, but they don't care. But you're with us. I consider a very important program. There are knockoffs now popping up everywhere, including my friends on radio. I think I'll do an interview show, one hour, with a long-form interview. <sighs> okay, good. So ABC News is starting it. PBS is starting it. So we started this, what, six months ago now? And we announced it eight or nine months ago. And I really wanted to break the usual format so we don't have a conga line of guests. So we, we get deeply and substantively into issues with one or two guests top. And they're there, or he or she is there for the full hour. And so I had Sean Hannity. And the reason I had Sean on, one of the reasons was he is the highest rated cable person, the highest rated cable show consistently. And it's not even close. He's now defeated Maddow. When Maddow used to beat him now and then, all the websites would promote, oh, look at this, look at this, she's number one. Now that he's number one consistently, you never hear a thing. Even from the friendlies, you never hear a thing. And so uh, we had a lot of fun. And I thought, let me just play a few short clips for you. Not because of me, but because of Sean. Uh, because I thought it was so compelling. Here he is last night on Life, Liberty, and Levin. Just a couple of minutes. Cut 14, go. As the Babe Ruth of cable TV, you're also attacked a lot by the left, I noticed. They try these boycotts every now and then. They attack you. They go after you. What is that like? Wow, this is a great question. Um, the most important thing to me, I don't care. Not even a little bit, Mark. One bit what the left thinks of me. I just care about what's right. Like you, um, I have a love and a passion for this country. And I always brought up in 2016, I do it by design, it's my way. You have your gifts and your unique style. Rush has his, his unique style. I, I like to be myself. And I saw 13 million more Americans on food stamps, 8 million more in poverty. I saw the lowest labor participation rate since the 70s, worst recovery since the 40s, 51% low in home ownership, a doubling of the debt. I give those numbers out regularly on purpose because those are real people, real Americans, real suffering, and they're suffering because of government failure. And this is your wheelhouse. This is what you do. And you do the, the history of our great founders and framers and philosophers. But at the end of the day, I'm looking at it from a very practical standpoint. What works? Why does it work? But why do you think you're attacked the way that you're attacked? I'm attacked because it, it, for a lot of these people, it's about power. You know, we're, we had the most unbelievable week where Pam Bondi is attacked. Think about this. Uh, Secretary Nielsen is attacked. Sarah Huckabee is attacked. Conservatives are being thrown out of restaurants. They're being followed. You have high-profile Democrats suggesting that we, conf we get confronted in gas stations, in restaurants, wherever you see. It's like a mob mentality has taken over. And the real reason for it is that in 500 days, the economy's flipped dramatically. Every economic indicator we have is off the charts. Nobody thought Donald Trump would win. Nobody thought he'd get the primary. Nobody thought he'd beat Hillary. And nobody thought he'd be this successful. And 
we're now in the silly season where Democrats have only one single playbook. And that is Republicans are racist, sexist, misogynist, homophobic, xenophobic, Islamophobic. And it's one big lie. Mm -hmm. I asked him, uh, well, let's let's play cut 15. Go ahead. What else has Donald Trump done? He's cut taxes. I don't know. He's exposed the media. And this is why they hate him. I am convinced. The media have played this game with the American people for decades, that they're objective and or bipartisan, and they're only reporting the news. He's shown them to be a pseudo profession. Mm -hmm. It's not a profession at all. And what he's shown them also to be is groupthink, a one mind. There's different characters, you know, different levels of uh, intelligence, some of them quasi-intelligence, if you will, and so forth. He drives them nuts because he calls them out. And then they accuse him of attacking them press freedom he's not attacking press freedom he's pointing out how they're undermining press freedom in 2007 and 8 i said journalism in america i remember this is dead right i didn't even know how right i was at the time here's what they haven't figured out and i love this part what they haven't figured out at cnn cnn will they have been so branded they will forever be known as fake news, CNN. Same with the broadcast networks. I think one of the funniest things the president does, and if you have a sense of humor and you understand Donald Trump and the American people seem to understand him and they accept that he's not your cookie-cutter politician that is politically correct, that won't take a chance. But I think during his rallies, when he sees see those people in the back, fake news, fake news, and the crowd turns around, on their own, not led by Trump, CNN sucks, you know, or fake news, and they shout at them. Because, and, and I would be thinking if I was running a network and every state, every group of people were saying Hannity sucks, I think I might take it personally at some point and say, well, what am I doing wrong? And then finally, although this wasn't the entire show by any means, but finally for our radio playing, Cut 16, go. How do you explain... The so-called never-Trumpers. The president has been enormously successful in foreign policy. A lot of them come out of the uh, Bush administration, sort of the neoconservative movement in that genre. When you look at Iran, the president did exactly the right thing. When you look at Israel, recognizing Jerusalem as the capital and moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. That was the law that was bypassed by every president except this president. When you look at how he's dealt with North Korea, people may quibble over the things he has said to on and so forth. But the fact is, he's done more with North Korea in terms of, first of all, putting the military threat out there and then driving the uh, the dictator to the table than any previous president. It's called peace through strength. Peace through strength. But when you look you work for Reagan, I worked for Reagan. And I supported Trump in the general election. Yes, you did. And I see a lot of similarities. I'm not talking about the way they speak. But there's a charisma to both of these men. And there is a principle to both of these men. And I'm concerned that there are some people who claim to be conservatives who don't recognize it, either because they've had a personal tiff with him or the very thin-skinned about approaches and so forth and about so on. one other thing? You, they don't want to admit they're wrong. They don't, and you've been in a fight with a lot of these people. It's, you know, it's not even a fight because the American people are winning now. Look, I'm going to make a prediction. Donald Trump is a transformational president.
and I don't believe as a nationalist, and I don't believe as a populist. I have always remained in my entire career consistent. I am a Reagan conservative, and which you were the chief of staff for Ed Meese, one of the greatest attorney generals we ever had. And so you know Reagan's policies as I do. I can cite the economic statistics, 20 million new jobs, uh, you know, literally doubled revenues to the government, you know, revenues go. He was hated too, attacked by the same well, force. Well, wait a minute. He was, yeah. he was called an amiable dunce by Republican establishment figures, right. and voodoo economics was a Bush term. Look, it took him three times to get the nomination. Mm -hmm. uh, he was attacked all the time. The media hated him, hated him. But they hate Trump more. More. And my view of that is, and see if you agree, they thought Hillary was going to win. They banked on Hillary. They wanted their third term of Obama. And this man wins, surprises everyone, probably surprises himself. The American people rose up and said, enough is enough. We want to try this man. And this is not just an attack from my perspective on Trump. This is an attack on the American people. And you can hear it more and more. Scarborough 100%. talking about... Trump voters as racists. Mm -hmm. Now, the Trump voters are racist. Hillary calling them deplorables. They're attacking tens of millions of Americans. Mark, look at the struck page text. I go to Walmart and I can smell the Trump people. There's a contempt. Uh, and the left has always had this for conservatives. But there's a contempt for people. Now, I'm back live. This is the sort of, you know, very, I think, interesting discussion that occurs on Sunday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific, on the Fox News channel, Life, Liberty, and Levin. And I hope you'll watch it. And, uh, and I hope they'll promote it. But even when they don't, we do very, very well, thanks to you. I'll be right back. Mark Levin. This is the best of the Mark Levin Show. Happy Independence Day. Well, here's one for you, ladies and gentlemen, from the Hill newspaper. Legal experts say Mueller, the Mueller team, likely gained access to NRA tax filings. I'm a lifetime member of the NRA. There's almost six million of you who are members of the NRA. Legal experts say it's likely special counsel Robert Mueller secretly gained access to the National Rifle Association's tax returns as part of the investigation into Russian meddling in the 2016 election, according to a McClatchy report. Mueller's team is reportedly looking to NRA donors with links to Russia and investigating whether some donors use the organization to illegally funnel foreign money to President Trump's campaign. This guy, Mueller, is unbelievable. A throwback to the old Soviet prosecutors. That's what he is. The NRA spent $30 million in support of Trump's campaign. Why don't they look at the NEA and AFT? They spent more than that on Hillary's campaign. So they're investigating the tax returns of the NRA. Are they investigating the tax returns of the Clinton Foundation? No. How about the Clinton's tax returns? No. How about the donors to the Clinton campaign? No. I've about had it up to here with this fraud investigation, this clown Mueller and his uh, happy, uh, out-of-control Democrat prosecutors. I've had it with these people. 
and these clown judges too. They uh, they're in the the bench. They go on and on. Oh, the Constitution and separation of powers, and we know you're after Trump, and blah blah blah. And then they write their opinion. Well, it's within the scope, and there's. I mean, the, the hell are these fools? Then you got the Obama judge in Washington D.C. The hell's her name? I can't remember. Such a lightweight. You got Manafort sitting in confinement, solitary confinement in a federal prison. Separated from his family, but of course they don't care about that. In a federal prison. For what? For what? Wire fraud, bank fraud, this fraud, that fraud. All occurred many, many years ago when Mueller was the FBI director and apparently blind as a bat. Couldn't see it back then, but today he sees everything. And then the judge in the Eastern District, Ellis III. On and on. Ah, you just want to get through. Ah, right now it's, well, those are the rules. What can I do? And by the way, let me drop a footnote. Uh, provide no rational substance whatsoever on the uh, appointments clause. And say, you know, uh, Professor Caliber, I know you listen to the show, Judge. I know who you are, and you know I know who you are. And Calabrese. And in two sentences, he dismisses it. Like he's uh, God Almighty himself. The Marson v. Olson opinion. Like we haven't read the Marson v. Olson opinion. 30 years ago. I make a slightly different argument as Calabrese continues to refine his position. My argument is different, I think, at this point. My argument is that special counsel can be constitutional, but this one is not. Because of the nature of the appointment. I've said two things all along, and then I just come along and say, hey, look, I have an idea. Nobody said it. Well, let me repeat what I've said. You can go back and listen on my website if you care, and probably don't. Number one, Rosenstein is Deputy Attorney General, but Acting Attorney General for a very specific area did not have the authority to confer all this power on a subordinate. In two senses. He did not have the authority to confer the Attorney General's power on a subordinate where the Attorney General's recusal doesn't cover certain aspects of that power. That's number one. Number two. Mr. Rosenstein did not have the power to confer such broad powers and unchecked and really not even overseen on his special counsel creation. Because then he moves the special counsel from an inferior employee to a principal officer of the federal government. I don't give a damn what Judge Ellis says. He didn't even hear the argument. He didn't even, there hasn't even been an oral argument, papers submitted, he drops a footnote. Who cares about his footnote? So now the NRA's taxes are being uh, looked at by Mr. Mueller and his band of left-wing Democrat kook prosecutors so many of whom are utterly and completely biased, and some of whom are unethical and have been certified as unethical. Any Trump supporter among them? Which one? Anybody go to the Trump victory party? Which one? Any do- anyone of them donate substantially to the Trump campaign? Which one? None of them. So just so you know, uh, legal experts say Mueller team... It's gained access to the NRA tax fund. I mean, it's absolutely outrageous what this clown is doing. 
NRA General Counsel John Frazier said in the April disclosure that Torshin has not made additional contributions, but he found a Russian. Is that it? Found a Russian. You know, it's still not illegal to be a Russian. I just want to point that you can be a Russian, and it's not illegal. I'll be right back. You're listening to the best of the Mark Levin Show. Happy Independence Day. You can call us now at 877-381-3811. And the liberal contact number is 877-381-3811. You know, if you shower, brush your teeth, or try to make your hair look presentable, here's some good news. Dollar Shave Club has a lot of stuff to keep you out. Dollar Shave Club delivers everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best. Shampoo, conditioner, body wash, toothpaste, hair gel, everything. All the Dollar Shave Club's products are made with top-shelf ingredients that won't break your budget. And they'll all help you out. You'll feel the difference. Plus, shipping is free with your membership. And here's a great way to try a bunch of Dollar Shave Club's products. For just 5 bucks, you can get their Daily Essentials Starter Set. It comes with amber, lavender, calming body cleanser, their world-famous Shea Butter, their best razor, the six-blade executive, and you can keep the blades coming for a few months, just a few more bucks a month. And add in shampoo, toothpaste, or anything else you need. Check it all out at dollarshaveclub.com slash mark. dollarshaveclub.com slash mark. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash mark. You know, I've never met Harris Faulkner, but I watch her on the Fox News channel. And you know what? She's a class act. She's like a real journalist, which is kind of rare these days. And uh, she has a really great book out, Nine Rules of Engagement, A Military Brat's Guide to Life and Success. Harris Faulkner, how are you? Wow, Mark, what a warm intro to me. I'm so grateful. It is wonderful to speak with you this evening. I am doing great. This is one of my favorite times of the year leading up to Independence Day. My only other favorite time, of course, is Christmas because I have kids. (laughs) But I am so super excited to join you and to talk with your audience about something that I know is working. I got it. I've been signing books as people send them to me for Fox because people want to give them as gifts. And there was one woman whose card I read on my Instagram and Facebook today live. She said that she picked up my book and a short time later, and the book's only been out for a month, so it'd have to be a short time. She got a huge promotion on her job. She started making changes in her life. I know this stuff works and I want your listeners to engage the nine rules of engagement immediately. Well, you know what? And I didn't know you were a uh, military brat. So, you know, uh, kudos to you and your, your father. Let's, let's jump into this. So nine rules of engagement for life, basically. Mm-hmm. Pick a few and explain them to us. All right. So the whole premise of this is to look at that military family experience and to understand that there's certain things that are required and expected, particularly of the offspring of officers. My dad fought in Vietnam twice. He was a combat pilot. I opened the book with one of the many stories. He was stationed in Dong Ha at one point, the northernmost town of South Vietnam, just below the DMZ. And I start the book off with a mission that started to go sour. And the reason that I do that is because the first place you start in life is to believe you can. You've got to really dive into your own potential. And if all you have is a battered, shot-up plane and your skills, you've got to believe that you are enough. 
And that kicks in the rules. The first one, and I'm glad you and I have finally met because I would consider you one of my special forces. Oh, the thank first you. time, Mark, absolutely. I mean, you, you want people with conviction. You want people, and I've listened to you and watched you now, you want people around you who really believe in goodness and the best that we can be. Those people who believe that change is possible, that's where we are in the nation right now, and I know that's what you believe. And you want integrity and honesty. Mark, quite frankly, most people need to fire some people in their lives today. And some of them are relatives. It's tough. <laughs> right? well, hold on, I have fired a bunch of those already, you know. Don't you kind of go through your life every now and then you're like, okay, something's not working. What yes. do I have too much of? I don't know, but if your neighbor's gossiping, you got to chat with him or her because that mm -hmm. will bring you down. If And, you know, anybody who has time to covet what you have cannot possibly help you get to where you need to be. At your level of success, Mark, I know you've done this. Because you can't, yeah, you've had to. And you probably don't talk about it all that much because it doesn't, it's not a warm and fuzzy to tighten or what I call renovate your inner circle. Recruit your special forces is rule number one, where you do that, that renovation around you so that you have people who really have your back. That whole concept in the military of watching your six, mine is more of a 10 these days. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that, that whole idea. So that's one place where you start. Uh, another place and this is one of my favorite rules. And again, I know from just listening to you and watching you that sometimes these things are already in play or you need to remind yourself to do them. We all have demons and we have to deal with them. Mine was the kind of tardiness that I would show up at events that I had orchestrated and people would be already ordering their food. I was so late. Oh, I, had a news, I know. I had a news director told, tell me that it was going to ruin my career. And do you know how he knew? Because he was about to stop me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so the military knows this. They're a good template for this. We know that they are struggling to get the right idea about the VA and our hospitals. They have to fix it because it's part of their readiness. And we are the best fighting force in the world. Let, let, me, let, me, let me ask you something. As sure. I listen to you, are you always this optimistic? Yes. You are a positive force. I'm just listening to you. Well, thank you. Yes, I am. I have to be. Because the world would tell you that there's no hope. But we know that there are miracles every day, Mark. Mm -hmm. Every day. And, and yes, you know, I am strong in my faith. I love where I work because I know that I can ask my coworkers to pray for me or pray with them. Or, and it's not a place where that's out of place. I think that when you are purposeful in your life, you have to make sure that you're in the right place, surrounded by the right people. You know, the military doesn't send 250 people on a Navy SEAL mission. They send like a couple dozen, because they know they've got the right people. And that's how we should missionize our lives. What's your next goal? And, and your listeners know you're very successful. And at the same time, I was listening to you just a few minutes ago. Uh-oh. You're on fire about change. And why is that, Mark? Because you have that same spark of hope. And you know that if you don't leave your feet planted and you've got good surrounded, you know, you're surrounded by good forces, that anything is possible. And so that's where I stay with my hope. I know that we need clutch people around us but we also need to be clutch for other people. It opens up so much opportunity in our lives, and it reminds us of that one strand that runs through everything, and that's integrity. 
Think about how many people are just deciding right now they're not getting on the high road. Mm-hmm. There's so much room on the high road. You and I could drive a convertible anything <laughs> we want. It never rains on the high road. I'm like, uh-uh. I'm honking my head. Hey, Mark, I'm going to see you. We're on the high road. That's where people need to stay because when the opportunities come up, and they will, we're ready. I, my, my one concern about where the nation is right now is that it is losing sight of its potential and concentrating on what divides us. And so I would say this, and I write about this in the book, it's okay to debate. I like to debate, too. I do a show called Outnumbered. Love to have you on sometime. Great, by the way, Not great it. show. Thank you. Wouldn't that be fun? I mean, we'd sit there, we'd, we'd talk. You got uh, Everybody fun. would hate me. No, they wouldn't. Because we'd talk and we'd, we'd, you know what we would do? <laughs> we'd concentrate less on who's right and more on what's right. There you go. I mean, now, let me, let me ask you a question here. This one fascinates me. Wear camo rule. What does that yeah. mean? Yeah. It means come ready for whatever it takes. So when I was starting out in the business, people would say, Harris, you're so overdressed. It's not all about fashion, by the way, but I'll get to that in a second. And, you know, in my early 20s, the reason, Mark, that I would kind of dress and, and boy, those credit card bills were fierce. I mean, I was well into my marriage before I was paying some of that stuff off, but it was worth it because I needed to be, you know, in that nice blue suit or that nice red dress or whatever it was to compete as an early reporter because I loved it when people would con- confuse me with my boss mm-hmm. because they knew I was going places. They were mm-hmm. like, wait, did you get a promotion? And I'm like, well, not yet, but I'm working on it. So camo is the gear that a SEAL or a Green Beret goes into battle with. They wear different colors. They take the weaponry that is necessary. It is the whole toolkit of gear, if you will. And that's how we need to go to work every day. When you go to work, part of our gear mark is to make sure we bring everything such that when we engage in a debate, we mean it. Mm -hmm. Things don't just accidentally happen. And, you know, people write stuff about us all the time. I've stopped reading the blogs. I was on The View last week, and I just had to stop reading everything. And I got applause there, and then people were mad because that happened, and I realized that I'm living my truth, and I'm really trying to help people. Now, hold on there. I like that line. You're living your truth. What do you mean by that? You know how I know? Because everybody's mad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or or everybody feels motivated, and they don't know why. Mm -hmm. That was the case for that audience. I wasn't going to let it go negative with the the ladies on the on the table there at at the view. And my girlfriend was it was it uncomfortable was there? Yeah, Uh, not for me. Because yeah. there was my girl, McCain, fellow military brat, wrote the back quote on my book. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also know who I am. I, I'm you're, really- you're, you're, let me tell you something. You're fascinating. Oh, so are you. Well, forget Thank about you. me. But, no, no, but, but you're fascinating. The book is, it's a remarkable book. And, you know, it's almost like you have to be a psychologist to write this book. I know you're not a psychologist. No. But, no. but. But this seems this was in you for years, I bet, this book. I journaled this book since I was a teenager. Yeah. Because I realized that I had something that the other kids didn't have, and they had something I didn't have. And what I wanted to do was be around the good kids. And when I would make the wrong decision, because I don't want to sugarcoat this, there's a part in the book where my mom realizes that I'm hanging out with some girls who are active. You know what I mean? 
Hmm. She used to call them fast girls, which meant yeah. they were quick. We, to we do know what she I meant. Be doing. You're right. Yes. They were quick to be doing stuff that I shouldn't be doing. Yes. So my mother looked at that and she said, well, I can tell Harris Kimberly no, but she's defiant. She's reaching her, you know, her womanhood. How do I do this? So my mom came up with an idea of all these chores she would have me do. She had me ironing pillowcases for the house. Now, first of all, <laughs> I, I don't even know what the benefit of an iron pillowcase outside of a hotel situation would be do, would be anyway. And I think I caught her a couple of times coming into the house with some purchased pillowcases for me to iron. Like she was running out of pillowcases. Mm-hmm. But here's why she did it. She wanted me to understand that um, I had a role in the house. And that if I was going to be walking outside the family values, I was constantly going to be remembered of how time-consuming it would be to try to do that. And then instead of me just doing household chores, she would sit with me, and she would re-imprint those things that were our family values. And she would say, your father is a military pilot. There's a lot expected of you, Harris Kimberly. Let me review in case you're getting confused, and I think you might because you're hanging with the wrong crew. Mm-hmm. And then after a while, the stories and, and the time with mom got to be really interesting. And I got some benefits from that relationship. I, she would take me on her job and I could earn a little money. And sooner or later, I didn't want to hang out with those other girls. It paid literally to be on the right road. Well, well, I, want to t- I want to tell you something. I want to remind the audience. The book is called Nine Rules of Engagement. This is Harris Faulkner. You see her on the Fox News channel. I'm already getting emails about you. Uh-oh. People are saying, I'm going to get the book. She is oh. fascinating. Uh, you are fascinating. Thank and this you. is a hell of a book. And so it's up on my social sites, folks. You can go to Mark Levin Show Facebook, Mark Levin Show Twitter. You can go to Amazon, any major bookstore. And I want to strongly encourage you to get this book. These lessons are really good lessons. And the way you write... It's very fun. It is understandable. It's a great summer read. And I want to thank you for coming on. And we need to have you back if you're willing to come back one day. I would love it. We can talk about anything, news of the day, anything. You blessed me so much by having me on. I'm so excited for people to get this book. And if they send it to Fox News, I will autograph it. Uh, no, you have no idea what you just did. Oh, I do. The books are showing up. And I'm like, I was signing for a couple of hours today because I like to really personalize it. People send letters. Some are from the military, some are civilian. I'm getting college kids sending me notes saying, you know, which rule should I start with? All right. Well, let me ask you because we have to go. Where do you you want them to send it? 1211. I know. You know what? Why don't we do this? How about if I just tweet at you? Tweet at me, and then we'll figure out how to tweet it up. Because I'm already following you. I'm a fan. Well, thank you. Absolutely. You know, I don't, I don't follow anyone, Harris. I'm very much a loner, just so you know. Except my wife. I follow her everywhere. So. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right. Thank you again. I'll tweet at you. Your, your listeners will be able to see it. God bless, and we'll get together. You too. I look forward to it. God bless to you too. Isn't she fascinating, Rich? Wow, what a personality. And smart, I'm telling you. I watch this this show she's on. Outnumbered and outnumbered overtime. I'm quite serious. I'm in my studio getting ready to tape uh, Levin TV, and I always have it on. 
And she's a star. She is terrific. Harris Faulkner. The book is Nine Rules of Engagement, A Military Brat's Guide to Life and Success. It's not just one of these life books. It's a fascinating book. You heard her. You heard the energy. It comes across in the pages. It is a perfect summertime read. It really is. And you're going to get some insight into uh, Harris Faulkner. It really is a terrific book. Nine Rules of Engagement. Go to Amazon.com, Mark Levin Show, Facebook, or Mark Levin Show, Twitter. We'll be right back. Mark Levin. This is the best of the Mark Levin Show. Happy Independence Day. I have to say I'm invigorated now, having talked to Harris Faulkner. Nine Rules of Engagement. Don't forget. It's a powerful book. Speaking of powerful, I want to tell you about the best mattress manufactured on the planet. And I know this. If it wasn't the best mattress manufactured on the planet, my family and I wouldn't own six of them. I wouldn't have one for Barney. Now one for Marty. And my son, Chase, has them for both his Huskies. It's Casper. Casper was created with one goal, deliver a great night's sleep at an incredible value. This 4th of July holiday, Independence Day, experience Casper for yourself and transform your sleep like I did. I'm not kidding. Casper's team of engineers worked nonstop prototyping, collecting data, and engineering what is certainly the most comfortable mattress, period. The Casper mattress has a unique combination of foams, that provide the right pressure relief and alignment so you feel perfectly balanced and comfortable. Thanks to the breathable material, you're guaranteed to sleep cool all summer long. Try Casper yourself for 100 nights in your own home, risk-free, and they ship it to you for free in a compact box. So brilliant is this product. So outstanding is their service that there are knockoff companies trying to catch up. They're knockoffs. Forget it. This mattress is like no other. The service is like no other. Now, if you don't love it as much as I love mine, you don't have to put it back in that tiny box. They come pick it up and refund you everything, no questions asked. So let me suggest, take your existing mattress off the bed, lean it against the wall, get your Casper. And I bet you'll get rid of that other mattress and you'll keep your Casper. This 4th of July, Independence Day, Casper's getting sleepy for summer. Go to Casper.com, save up to $225 off your order. It's a limited time only, and they mean it when they say limited time only. So really jump at this. That's, uh, terms and conditions apply. That's Casper.com. Save the $225 off your order. Casper.com. That's Casper.com. Well, we've gotten heavy duty into the Supreme Court, and I think that's necessary. That court belongs to us, not to the left. We the people. Those justices work for us. They're not working for the left. And so we need to raise our voices in a rational way and make the case. Ladies and gentlemen, we salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, and emergency personnel. Please check out Levin TV tonight. Check out Nine Rules of Engagement on Amazon. And I'll see you tomorrow. God bless you.